0: Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.
1: It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Goodbye, Piccadilly.
2: And welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 52, The Second Sino-Japanese War Part 3, Shanghai. This week, a big thank you goes out to Gunner, Azra, Scott, Anton, and Rick, who have chosen to support this podcast on Patreon, where they now get access to special ad-free versions of all of the podcast episodes, plus special patron-only episodes released roughly every month. If that sounds interesting to you, head on over to historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members to find out more information. For three months, starting in mid-August 1937, one of the largest battles of the Second Sino-Japanese War would rage in and around Shanghai. Hundreds of thousands of troops would eventually be involved in fighting that would start inside the city before spilling out into the surrounding countryside. They would use all the tools of modern warfare, aerial bombardment, artillery, tanks, and naval fire support and in the process turned Shanghai into a street fighting hell. It would be one of the early examples of the kind of urban warfare that would become far too common just a few years later, with two large armies with plenty of weapons and ammunition trying to slowly grind out the battle, leaving little but death and destruction behind them. This battle will be the focus of our next two episodes, starting today where we will lay the groundwork before discussing how the fighting started, And then the next two episodes will be all about the escalation, as both sides committed more and more resources to fighting in the city. During the 1930s, Shanghai was, in almost every way, a modern city. It was the second largest city in Asia, behind only Tokyo, with a population of around 3.5 million residents. It was also home to many foreign-born individuals who had relocated to Shanghai, mostly for business reasons, living in an international district within the city. After 1927, it was also controlled by the central Chinese government under the control of Chiang Kai-shek, who had taken the city in 1927 from its previous leaders, a group of local warlords. There were also two different worlds within the city. There was the business leaders and also the foreigners who lived a life of modern conveniences and luxuries, and then there was everybody else. These lower class Chinese worked incredibly long hours for very little pay and lived in tiny and cramped apartments, which was all they could afford. These workers, along with Shanghai's access to foreign markets through its port facilities, made the city one of, if not the, most important economic and business center in China. Along with these economic activities, 1937 would not be the first time that Japanese and Chinese soldiers would be fighting within the city. In January 1932, a group of Japanese officers paid a Chinese gang to attack a group of Japanese priests which gave the Japanese officers an excuse to send an expedition of Japanese marines out of Shanghai's international district on a mission of vengeance. These Japanese troops were met with small weapons fire from Chinese soldiers and other gang members, but were mostly undeterred from their mission. More Japanese troops would arrive in the city, along with more Chinese forces as well, and the fighting would begin and would not end for over a month, as the two sides clashed, mostly in the Zabe district. Eventually, the Japanese would land an additional division of troops in northern Shanghai, and the fighting would end in early March. By that point, the dislocation of people within the city had reached half a million, often those that were least able to afford such problems. After the fighting in 1932, Shanghai would be relatively peaceful until August 1937. By that time, the situation in northern China had developed in important ways, which we discussed last episode. These changes had put a growing pressure on Chiang to find a way to resist the continued expansion of Japanese power within China. He had been yielding a lot of territory and control to the Japanese in the belief that it was better to wait until China was as prepared as possible before initiating a larger conflict. By July 1937, it seemed that he was ready to make that commitment. And on July 16th, at a meeting of 150 Chinese leaders, he would discuss his future strategy and his belief that Shanghai would very likely be the place where the first real battle of the upcoming war would take place. Chang could in many ways dictate where such a battle occurred because of his control over specific parts of the Chinese military. On paper, the forces available to the Chinese leaders seemed massive, with a total of 176 divisions with a paper strength of 10,000 soldiers each during peacetime. However, only about 20 of these divisions were actually at full strength, and instead almost all of them hovered at around 5,000 men. Equipment was also a major problem for most Chinese formations, both the amount of it available and its overall quality. There was an important exception to this rule, though, and it was part of why Chang had so much agency in how the future developed in the Sino-Japanese War because within his control were 20 divisions of troops which were maintained at full strength and into which had been poured large sums of money, both for training and for equipment, both of which had been provided by Germany. These divisions were considered to be equal to the Japanese forces that they would be facing. Chang could dictate where the real fighting would begin by where he decided to commit these troops, because they would have to be used somewhere that would be made important by their very presence. They had not been used in northern China, but they would be in the field in Shanghai. The goals of preparing to defend Shanghai with all possible resources was not just to keep the city in Chinese hands, but also to force a greater commitment of Japanese resources into the area, and away from northern China, where their advances continued unchecked. The major reason that Chang was so certain that fighting would soon begin in Shanghai was due to the continued Japanese military presence in the city, a presence dictated by the settlement of 1932 this made shanghai a very tense area as the overall situation throughout china moved closer and closer to open war in the years following 1932 which brings us to august 10th 1937 a date on which an event would occur that would trigger the beginning of the battle of shanghai first let's talk about what we know for certain which was that on august 10th the bodies of sub lieutenant oyama isao and first-class seaman Seto Yozo would be found in the Zabe district and near the Shanghai airport. This being the same Zabe where, the, where they had seen so much fighting during 1932, fighting that had left physical scars on the buildings and which had left mental scars on everybody who lived in the area. So just to review, we know that it is two Japanese soldiers who were found dead on August 10th, 1937, but the fuzzy bit comes in when we try to determine the exact scenario and events that resulted in their deaths. According to the Chinese, the men were in a vehicle, they tried to force their way through a gate near the airport, they were signaled by Chinese security forces to stop, and they did so. However, they then turned the vehicle around and shot at the Chinese using automatic pistols. According to the Japanese, the fault was squarely at the feet of the Chinese. The Japanese would claim that the men had been driving a car on the road near the airport. They were then stopped and surrounded by Chinese paramilitary forces who then shot up the vehicle with rifles and machine guns. As with many such incidents, it is both almost impossible to determine what the exact truth was, while simultaneously, the truth, very rapidly, did not matter. Both sides now had the excuse that they needed to expand the fighting as they saw fit, and they would both take advantage of this. Very rapidly. As more troops were brought into the area, Chang would send in his best, the 87th and the 88th Division, with these troops being used for two reasons. There was the obvious reason of hanging on to Shanghai against the Japanese troops which were already in the city and the reinforcements which were almost certainly on the way. But there was also a second reason to make a good showing of themselves. The Chinese army had done little except surrender and retreat in the face of Japanese aggression for the better part of a decade. And so Chang believed it was crucial that when he decided to stand against the Japanese troops, the troops that were sent had to equip themselves well, if only to show to the rest of the Chinese nation and to the world at large that they could do so when they wanted to. The two divisions had been prepared for just such a purpose, with better equipment and many of their officers having been sent through the Chinese military academy in the years before 1937. At the academy, many of those officers would meet their eventual commander during the Battle of Shanghai, General Zhang Zhihang. Zhang had been the commandant of the military academy before the war, and he would be selected by Chang to command the left wing of the Chinese defense, which included the Shanghai city center, where the fighting would most likely occur and would most likely begin. He was not a bad choice. His personal relationships with the commanders of the 87th and 88th divisions were certainly a positive but there was a problem. He was very sick. He had taken a leave of absence just months before for health reasons, and that was from a far less stressful job as commandant of the academy. When he was called on to command the troops to face the new round of Japanese aggression in the summer of 1937, he had in fact been preparing to leave the country for a period to convalesce internationally. He would not get his break, though, and while his heart may have been in it, During the coming battle, there would be many reports that he was on the brink of complete mental and physical breakdown. The other commander would be General Zhang Fukui, who would command the 8th Army Group on the right wing of the Chinese positions. Zhang Fukui would go on to have a long and illustrious career in the Nationalist Army, and will reappear in our story several times in the coming years. While these command arrangements were being made, the Chinese troops rapidly began to move into the area. There were still some attempts at negotiating out of further fighting. During this process, the Japanese side of the negotiations was handled by the navy, who had made an arrangement with the army, which meant that the army had control in northern China, but the navy had control in and around Shanghai. This created an interesting situation where the army, always looking to expand the Japanese power in northern China, was actually in favor of abandoning Shanghai altogether. The Navy was not willing to go that far, but they were willing to continue some level of negotiations, even though it appeared that the situation was rapidly spiraling out of control. The commanders at the front would receive orders on August 12th to begin moving their troops into Shanghai, which was essentially the end of any possibility of a negotiated settlement, if there was any possibility of that ever happening. It is more likely that the negotiations were just a cover with both sides wanting to be able to claim that they were the ones that had wanted to negotiate, and it had been the other side that had abandoned such attempts. The public Japanese demand was for the Chinese to withdraw all paramilitary forces from the city, the same police force that that was involved in the incident that started all of these events. To Chinese leaders, this seemed to make it clear, and hopefully anybody else who was watching would draw this conclusion as well that what the Japanese wanted was simply to expand their control all over Shanghai, which was felt to be enough of a cause for the Chinese leaders to resort to direct action. Within Shanghai itself, with small skirmishes already occurring, thousands of people began to leave their homes. Some tried to find refuge in the international settlement, which many believed, quite correctly, would be free of the worst of the fighting, at least initially. Others simply took to the countryside in an effort to escape the coming violence. The real battle would begin on August 13th, with the general front line, although the word front line here is used pretty roughly, at least on August 13th, being near the international settlement. On the 13th of Friday, local Chinese units would begin to send out patrols which would do some probing attacks against Japanese defenses. At the same time, the Japanese units, who were becoming outnumbered seemingly by the hour also tried to expand their zone of control in the hopes of finding and holding a a few key positions that would assist them when the coming offensive, which seemed almost certain, was launched. As with most urban fighting, there was a tendency for fighting to coalesce around a few specific locations. For example, on the western end of the fighting within Shanghai, the focus would be drawn to the headquarter building of the Japanese Marines, which was essentially a fortress. The building took up two city blocks, was four stories high, could hold thousands of troops, and was made of reinforced concrete. This completely dominated the local area and became a key point where the 88th Division had to prepare positions around it, both to contain the Japanese troops, but also to try and figure out a way to launch a possible attack. Often the positions on the 13th were not a clear and concise line. And both sides were sort of cautiously working their way forward to try and determine where the enemy really was, and also where the enemy was not. This led to interesting moments, for example, when a patrol of the 87th Division made it entirely through the Japanese lines, and even got eyes on the Japanese preparations to make a temporary airfield on the golf course near the river. This was far from the front lines, which was established in the surrounding area, and they just happened to get lucky and find a way through. Not all of the events were free from violence, though, and there were small clashes, sometimes very short and just a few shots, and some lasting for hours as the groups came to grips with one another. Later in the day, two Japanese ships would come into position on the Hongpu River, a destroyer, the Kuri, and a gunboat, the Sita, and they would begin to fire shells into the Chinese districts to the north. Theoretically, these shells were to assist the Japanese defenders against the attacks of the 87th Division, but their aim was questionable at best, and also not really a priority. During the night between the 13th and 14th, orders would be sent first to Zhang Zhihong from Nanking and then down to the units in the field that an all-out assault would be launched against Japanese positions the next day. There was an important caveat though. These attacks would try to avoid the international settlement as much as possible. There were Japanese troops within the settlement, and their positions were very important there, but it was felt to be too much of a political liability for the Chinese units to begin shooting up an area which held many international individuals and groups. This completely compromised the entire Chinese position and left a bastion of Japanese strength unaccounted for, but it was also meant that the only place to attack the Japanese was in the Hongku district, which was the most heavily fortified position in Shanghai. This included the marine headquarters that I mentioned earlier. And throughout the entire area, the Japanese had constructed barbed wire, concrete, and sandbag emplacements for machine guns. Many of these positions were impervious to the heaviest Chinese artillery, which was in the form of 150 millimeter howitzers, and the more common smaller artillery pieces did basically nothing to them. There was also no possibility of outflanking or working around these positions given the small geographical area that they occupied and the inability to attack through the international settlement. Preparation for the attacks would continue for most of the day until late in the afternoon when it would begin, and it was a massacre. The bravery of the Chinese officers and men cannot be questioned here. They executed the frontal assaults as well as could be expected, but that meant very little. Casualty rates were high, especially among the officers, and hundreds would die very rapidly. Remember, these were some of China's best troops, well-trained and well-equipped, and they were accomplishing nothing while trying to attack an entrenched foe in well-prepared positions. The results were so unsatisfactory that further attacks were called off, with Chang telling Zhang to hold off until further orders were received. While the 88th Division was getting ready for its attack on the Hongkou area, In the skies, the first major bombing of the city would occur when at 11 a.m., Chinese planes appeared over the city. Their target was the river and the Japanese naval vessels that were shelling Chinese areas of the city. Over the course of the day, six separate groups of Chinese bombers would appear over the city, all aiming for the same target, and the results would be disastrous. By all accounts, it was a horrible day for flying, but the air attacks were still launched, and the mostly inexperienced Chinese pilots would have a rough time. Their limited experience had trained them to bomb from a particular altitude at a particular speed, and most had not seen real anti-aircraft fire. On August 14th, instead of bombing at 7,500 feet, they were instead doing so at 1,500 due to cloud cover, and soon they began to approach their targets and the Japanese vessels unleashed clouds of anti-aircraft fire. Their chances of hitting the ships was small to begin with and they would in fact not do so. The problem was that the ships were very close to a very large city, and the bombs did not just disappear when they missed their targets. The first sortie came close, hitting the wharfs near the ships, and destroying some buildings and port facilities, which in a lot of cases were being used by the Japanese, so that's okay. The problem would come later. When later sorties had their bombs impact further afield, some directly into the international settlement. Buildings were destroyed, hundreds were killed or wounded, although exact numbers are soft. Uh, Later reports made by French officials who were in Shanghai at this time uh, put the number at about 150 dead and 675 wounded. Although at the time, this number would be reported massively inflated, as high as 5,000 by Japanese officials. It was a public relations disaster. Especially for China, who who had been trying to cause as few political problems as possible, they had not attacked into the international settlement to begin with because of this very problem. It would go down in history as Black Saturday or Bloody Saturday in Shanghai on August fifteenth. The Japanese would launch airstrikes that they had planned to launch the day before, but had delayed due to the weather g three m twin engine bombers would target air bases near Nanking from their home bases. In the Japanese home islands. While these planes were in the air, the Japanese cabinet would begin the process of sending army reinforcements to Shanghai to reinforce the Marines that were already stationed there, and soon the 3rd and 11th Divisions were on their way. The belief was that these two divisions would be more than enough to bring the situation into hand, even though the divisions were primarily made up of reservists, some of which were over a decade away from their last active duty. As would often be the case, this underestimation of the Chinese would result in a slow and disorganized piecemeal approach to escalating the Japanese commitment to Shanghai, which would cause the fighting to be longer and far more bloody than it might otherwise have been.
0: Traffic jams, tailgating...
1: Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
2: As the fighting spread throughout Shanghai, the number of people trying to leave the city continued to increase. It was not just the Chinese people who were leaving either, but also foreigners and Japanese who were beginning to consider the city simply too dangerous. Throughout the city, the destruction caused by the battle also continued to mount, not just from the fighting but also from the widespread looting that would follow. The number of destroyed buildings would also continue to rise as the Japanese put in place their tactic of dealing with Chinese-held buildings, which was to, basically, burn them to the ground. In this environment, the Chinese would plan their next large set of attacks for August 17th, which would prove to be their last major attacks in Shanghai. After the failure of these attacks, the fighting would begin to spread to the north of Shanghai, with Japanese forces launching two amphibious operations. This would eventually result in a lull in the fighting within the city center, with Chinese resources needed to meet those landings being taken at least partially from units within the city, and the Japanese choosing to place their reinforcements outside the city in the hopes that they could be more lucratively used in the more open areas around Shanghai. While the Chinese attacks that had started on August 14th were very costly and had not achieved their goals, they had put an incredible amount of pressure on the Japanese forces that had been in Shanghai when the fighting started. These Japanese marines under the command of Rear Admiral Okawachi Dinshiki were stretched very thin, and during the 16th there would be several messages sent to Japan asking for reinforcements. Each of these messages made the situation sound more and more desperate, with units being hastily thrown together and all resources being used to hold on to their positions. The messages would prompt a reaction, and after the second message, sent at 7pm, 500 marines were ordered to prepare to go to Shanghai, but then a third telegram arrived, and these plans were expanded, with 1,400 marines, which were already in Manchuria, ordered to board ships immediately so that they could move south. These reinforcements, which would arrive within a matter of days, added to the much larger number of army reinforcements that were also on their way, although it would take them a bit longer to get there. The movement of these reinforcements put a clock on the ability of the Chinese to push the Japanese out of Shanghai before substantial numbers of Japanese reinforcements arrived. And and there was an understanding of this on the side of the Chinese, that, that, you know, Japanese reinforcements would be on their way at some point. But with the complete failure of most of the attacks during the first three days of the battle, this just resulted in an increased level of desperation. As a reminder, during those early days, the Chinese had been throwing infantry against well-prepared and protected Japanese positions, and it was a bloodbath. They were constrained by political necessity in these attacks, and they felt that they had to avoid active fighting within the international settlement so as not to anger foreign parties. These constraints would remain for the upcoming set of attacks on the 17th even though there was growing concern that it was the constraints that were at least partially contributing to the Chinese failures. This concern came both from some Chinese officers as well as from several of their German advisors. These German advisors had come to China to help train the Chinese troops, and they were far from concerned about the international response to actions against the international settlement. They advocated for an attack directly against the Japanese in the settlement as the best way to compromise the position of the rest of the Japanese forces in Shanghai. But Chang would continue to impose these constraints on the large attack that was ordered for the 17th. Rather dramatically, this would be named Operation Iron Fist, and it would start off with an intense artillery bombardment. Then, while there would be attacks all along the front, the greatest hope was placed in small groups of well-armed and well-trained men, with the goal of pushing these spearheads through the Japanese lines, where they would sow chaos behind the Japanese defenses and open up the rest of the line to further attack. For the attack, there would be additional troops available, with the new arrivals of the 98th Infantry Division, which had entered the city on August 15th. Some of these fresh troops would be added to the beat-up troops of the 87th Division for the attack, and it would kick off at 5 a.m. on the 17th. The results would be mostly the same. The Japanese defenses proved simply too strong for the Chinese to make any real headway in direct assaults, no matter how motivated or trained the attacking units were. With the failure, the best chance to remove the Japanese from the city was probably lost, because on August 18th, reinforcements began to arrive, with the first units being the marines that had left Manchuria on the 16th. It would be the failure of the attacks on the 17th and the arrival of new Japanese troops which would cause a shift in policy, and for the next set of attacks, the international settlement was considered a valid target. They would focus on the Yangshipu district, with an attack from the 36th Infantry Division. The major goal of this attack was to march directly down one of the streets that led to the river and to capture the wharf areas, which would hopefully cut off the Japanese from moving further supplies into the city by sea. The attack would begin early in the morning of August 19th, and it would very quickly run into a problem. Obviously, the Japanese knew that the worst thing that could happen was a capture of the wharf area, and so they had set up heavily fortified and well-armed defensive positions around several of the intersections on the path to the river. This would make it far more difficult for the 36th Division to make their attack. Capturing these intersections to allow for further advances was costly, but the 36th would manage to do it, and they pushed through to the very last street before the wharf, which was Broadway. But when they reached the wharf, they ran into a new problem. Around the wharf was a high wall, which made it a fantastic defensive position, which was now manned by Japanese defenders. The Chinese units did not have any of the tools necessary to easily capture the positions on the wall, say some heavy artillery, and so they attempted some very old-school tactics, like scaling the wall with disastrous results. Much like in a medieval siege, trying to scale a wall that was being defended mostly just resulted in death due to incoming fire from above. Another major problem beyond the insurmountable wall was that Japanese ships in the river were able to shell the Chinese troops that were stopped by the wall, and this made some positions untenable and caused some units to become hopelessly disorganized as they sought cover. Over the next two days, the 36th Division would continue to attack, trying various ways to make it into the wharfs, and they would manage a few small successes, like when they got a few tanks past the wall, only to then find that there were many more Japanese troops and defensive positions waiting for them on the other side. This usage of tanks was not the only time that Chinese tanks would be used during the early days of the battle, but for the most part they were often not used very well. It was difficult to properly seal off the areas around the tank units, which meant that Japanese units were constantly able to outflank the tanks and then find ways to disable them, and it would cost the 87th Division, uh, 87th Division alone two full armored companies. During August 21st, it became clear that there was simply nothing more that the 36th Division could do in its current location, and they had to abandon their positions which they had shed so much blood to gain. With the failure of the 36th Division, it soon became very clear that the Chinese had lost their best and what would turn out to be only chance to push the Japanese into the river. Such an opportunity would not present itself again. More Japanese reinforcements were on their way, and even some of the advantages that the Chinese had enjoyed during the early days like relative air superiority, had rapidly vanished as more Japanese air units were allocated to the action, and eventually the Chinese infantry units were forced to carry out any major movements strictly under the cover of darkness out of fear of Japanese air attack. It was also about to get much worse as the addition of Japanese reinforcements which were on their way to the city continued to increase, and they were about to launch one of the largest amphibious assaults up to this point in history. The grand plan for these amphibious landings would involve the two Japanese army divisions that had been dispatched from Japan, and they would land north of Shanghai on the Yangtze River. The 3rd Division would send 3,500 men ashore six miles to the north of Shanghai, while the 11th Division would put 4,000 men ashore 18 miles north of the city. Obviously, such numbers would drastically shift the situation in and around Shanghai, and the Chinese commanders were mostly ignorant of what the Japanese were planning. But while they did not have specific information about Japanese plans, there was somewhat of a belief that if the Japanese did send large numbers of troops, they would probably not put them inside the city. They would find somewhere else outside the city to use them. However, with no hard intelligence due to the overall lack of focus on aerial reconnaissance, the landings would mostly be a surprise. There were changes to the plans for the landings actually within just like the last like 48 hours before they actually went ahead, which had the danger of throwing things into confusion. For example, originally the Japanese were going to execute one landing with everybody together instead of two. Along with this, the commanders of the army units were quite concerned about the risks inherent with any amphibious operation, especially one with so little planning. And so the Navy would try to assuage some of these concerns with a unit of 500 Marines, well-versed in amphibious operations, which would be in the first waves to go ashore. These Marines would actually come from Shanghai, which probably says something about the overall risks felt by the Japanese on August 22nd when they would be moved out of the city. After leaving the city, these Marines would sail to the Saddle Islands near the mouth of the Yangtze where the rest of the troops involved in the operation were being transferred to the landing vessels that they would use to land after having arrived in larger troop transports. With everybody aboard their landing craft, the flotilla started off towards their landing zones, and just minutes before the landing, all of the vessels activated their searchlights in an effort to blind the Chinese defenders. Searchlights were also used to zero in on any Chinese defensive fortifications, and if a machine gun opened up, it would almost instantly be lit up by a whole bunch of searchlights that would then direct naval bombardment. At 3am, the marines went ashore and started to climb the dike, which was in some places 15 feet high. What they found were Chinese defensive troops with little planning or organization, and while there was a brief bit of hand-to-hand fighting, there was little doubt that the landings would be successful. It would take just five hours before the last units were ashore and the divisional headquarters were in place, with a total cost of just 40 combined casualties between both landing sites. News of the landings would arrive back at Chinese headquarters at about 5.30am, so about two and a half hours after they started, but at this time the only information available was that the Japanese had landed in one area, but the size of their forces was completely unknown. Then at 9 a.m., more concrete information arrived, including news of the second landing further up the river, along with a better estimate of the total size of Japanese forces. Immediately, Chinese units were shifted to meet the new threat, with half of the 87th Division and a regiment from the Training Brigade, which had just arrived in Shanghai, sent north to meet the Japanese. The Training Brigade was a unit that had been created two years earlier, at the suggestion of one of the German advisors, General Hans von Siecht. The idea was that it would be used as a training unit with a special emphasis on the training of new officers, as well as the retraining of older officers who would rotate through on a schedule to get refreshers on tactics and technology as both continued to evolve. This was a good idea, and the plan was to use the training brigade as the engine that would fill out the officer corps of a new modern Chinese army that would have 60 fully modern and well-trained divisions at its core. However, this would not be the course for the brigade and instead, with the fighting starting, the training brigade would be thrown into the fighting around Shanghai. From a long-term perspective, this was an absolutely terrible idea. But the brigade did represent a very highly trained and skilled unit, and with casualties mounting around the city, and then the landings as well, a sense of desperation would prompt the unit to be committed to battle. It would prove to be every bit as well-trained and disciplined as expected, and it would serve as an example to other units, getting chewed up, just like every other unit in the process. Along with the 87th and the Training Brigade, the 98th and the 11th Division, which had only very recently arrived in Shanghai, were detailed to move into the path of the Japanese advance. The 11th Division would be given the specific objective of moving to and securing the town of Luodian. Luodian would be an important village because it sat on or near two roads, one between the Japanese landing sites and the town of ja- Da Chang on the way to Shanghai, and the other that led west and towards the important Chinese railways that were supporting the troops in Shanghai. Even with the 11th Infantry Division rapidly dispatched to defend the village, the Japanese would arrive first, with both sides understanding how important it was to hold the area. In their haste, the Japanese had only dispatched a small unit to capture the town, with the hope that it would be able to take and defend it until more reinforcements could arrive. They would do the first quite well, capturing the town against very little resistance. This boosted Japanese confidence and resulted in the Japanese units not exactly dedicating themselves to the construction of defenses. This meant that when the Chinese 11th Division arrived during the afternoon and immediately went over to the attack, their much greater numbers were able to push the Japanese out of the town. They would then start setting up defensive positions to defend what they had gained and planned ambushes along the routes that the Japanese would have to use for an attack. For their next attack, the Japanese would mass a force before they started their next advance, and they would then be slowed by the Chinese defenses. But they would still be able to push and even enter the town, but this time there was much harder fighting, and the close quarter street fighting would continue into the night. Eventually, the Japanese would actually be repulsed, and the 11th Division, proving that within the tight confines of urban fighting, they were quite able to match the Japanese units they were facing, successfully defended it. While fighting flared up along the entire length of the Japanese landings, in Shanghai, things became very quiet. The Chinese rapidly went over to the defensive in the city as they had larger issues elsewhere, and the Japanese reinforcements had been with the landings, so the Japanese marines in the city were in no condition to move over to the offensive. The 15th Army Group and its commander, General Chen Cheng, would take over some of the units defending Shanghai on August 24th, and would pull as many troops as possible out of Shanghai to bolster the Chinese counterattacks against the new Japanese arrivals in the north. All that was left in Shanghai was the 88th Division, half of the 36th, and then an independent brigade, all of which had seen heavy fighting since the beginning of the battle, which is part of the reason they were left in the city in the first place. This was a required move because if the Chinese had any hope of destroying the Japanese bridgehead, they had to do it quickly. By the 24th, the Japanese controlled an area 15 kilometers wide and 8 kilometers deep, and the only thing that kept it from expanding even further was a few key Chinese-held positions continuing to resist Japanese attacks. However, in most of these areas, these really important areas, there was a growing concern that the Chinese troops that were holding the line might fall apart at any moment. In a lot of these places, a lot of these towns or or villages, the Chinese troops that had moved in, you know, on August 23rd would remain in the town for several days, which wore them down after as constantly, constantly, constantly they were being attacked by either Chinese infantry or getting artillery shot at them or attacks from the air. And with such a tenuous defensive position, it was challenging, bordering on impossible to mount any counteroffensive operations. And from the Chinese point of view, this was allowing the Japanese to become more and more secure in their positions by the day. From the Japanese perspective, there were serious problems with the landings. The first was that they had not been as successful as hoped, and and Chinese resistance had materialized and sort of solidified faster than expected. The second was a problem familiar to almost every amphibious operation. Things were simply not getting ashore as quickly as hoped. The most immediately concerning thing was supplies, which were just taking a long time to move from supply ships to landing craft and then to shore, and this forced the Japanese forces that were ashore to start to live off the land and requisition anything they could from the surrounding countryside. Along with supplies not coming ashore, there were also problems getting more men ashore as well, with the rate at which the follow-on units were making landfall being much slower than the Japanese had planned, and much slower than, it should be said, the Chinese feared. Both of these problems caused the concern among Japanese leaders that they were about to enter a full stalemate on both landing sites, with both divisions becoming stuck in costly positional fighting. What would eventually sort of shift this balance would be the Japanese Navy, who would provide greater fire support in the form of naval bombardment and air attacks against Chinese positions on August 28th. This additional assistance allowed the 11th Division to finally take and hold Liodian. Uh, while the 3rd Division was able to take Ying Heng, which was holding up uh, their advances in a similar way on their area of the front. Even though these two objectives had finally fallen, it did not mean that they were done with fighting, and in fact, at the end of August, more reinforcements were requested from Tokyo, with a total of five divisions, or three more than were already present, being requested. While this request was made and they were waiting for a response, back on the ground, focus changed to the Wusong Fort. Wusong was the area where the 11th and 3rd Japanese divisions met, and it was critical that it be taken before any advances were made further inland. However, it would not be until August 31st that it was directly attacked, with both the 3rd and 11th divisions contributing forces and attacking from opposite directions. It was a slow process, and it would take several days to reach the fort, with the areas around the town taken on September 1st, before the final assault was made on September 2nd. When the assault was made, it was actually far easier than expected, and was actually completed by about 10 a.m. in the morning. As it happened, the defenders were not nearly as strong or prepared as the Japanese had feared. On September 2nd, Chang would send out a message to all the units around Shanghai, stating, "...the enemy's weakness is that they are turning a minor front into their major front. Their tactics are reactive. They are being pushed into action. Our strategy must be to focus on making it difficult for our enemy to advance further." We will then face a dilemma of whether to advance or retreat. We can use our capacity of, of endurance to achieve our goal in a protracted battle. While it presented an avenue for victory, what I just read was not exactly the most inspiring piece of text I've ever read. Wusong was just one of the two areas that were preventing full control of the river from far northern areas where the landings had been all the way down to Shanghai. The other one was Baoshan. The unit that was holding Baoshan, a battalion of the 89th Division, had been given explicit orders directly from Chiang Kai shek to hold the town at any cost. In this endeavor, the defenders had the advantage of a thick city wall that had been built centuries before to defend the town from other enemies. The Japanese troops were sent to take Baoshan, and they did not have any real plan for dealing with this wall. And so, much like the Chinese troops in Shanghai, they resorted back to the simplest of tactics, trying to scale the wall which was a costly tactic that, once again, didn't really work. The Japanese attacks were still greatly aided by the massive advantage that Japanese units had when it came to fire support. The defenders were bombed from both the air and the sea on September 5th. They were hit by artillery all day, which would eventually allow the Japanese to make their way into the city. The commander of the defense, Lieutenant Colonel Yao Jing, would only get two messages out before the end, one requesting further support and the other stating that his unit would fight to the death. The defenders would last for the rest of September 5th, but by nightfall they'd been pushed into a tiny area, and there were only about a hundred of them left. Baoshan would then fall completely into Japanese hands. While successes were happening on the ground around the city, back in Tokyo, the decision was finally made to answer the call for larger reinforcements. More troops would be sent to the battle in Shanghai, which had already expanded outside the bounds of the city, but was about to enter its third and final phase, the one that would see the battle continue to expand both in geographical and numerical scope, which would result in Chinese defeat.